Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, two key votes in the Senate regarding Bills C-69 and C-48. We hear from Alberta Senator Paul Simons. Calgary small businesses set to make their voices heard at a rally Monday morning, the latest on the city's property tax fiasco. Also, the Calgary Cannabis Club holding a protest of its own, concerned about whether cannabis legalization is only benefiting a select few. Plus, the CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada, discussing three years since the legalization of medically assisted dying. Well, we've got a lot to get to this afternoon, friends, but I want to start with some important developments in Ottawa. And I know there's a couple of pieces of federal legislation that folks here are paying really close attention to. So we got some important updates for you regarding Bill C-48 and Bill C-69. Now, these are two key pieces of legislation as far as the federal liberal government is concerned. Uh, things that they campaigned on, promises they say they're trying to fulfill. Obviously, though, there was a lot of concern about the impact of both of these pieces of legislation. Now, there's, I, I would say, some positive news with regard to C-69 in that the Senate has accepted uh, numerous recommendations. I think something like 180 amendments to Bill C-69. So it is possible, I think, that this legislation could be improved and maybe we're going in that direction. C-48, the tanker ban bill, that's another story. And it appears as though as this bill has kind of come back from the dead to some extent, if it was really dead. Yet recently, as you might recall, a Senate committee voting to kill the bill. Of course, that recommendation went to the Senate as a whole. And yesterday, the Senate rejected the idea of killing the bill. Doesn't mean the bill is passed. Doesn't mean this is a done deal. But the, the Senate has not accepted that recommendation. So joining us for the latest, one of the senators who was involved in that committee vote, Someone who finds herself at the center of uh, all of these dramatic ongoings in the upper chamber, Alberta Senator Paula Simons, part of the uh, Independent Senators Group. Senator, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Well, it was another action-packed week at the Senate. Well, no you know, kidding. I have to say, when, when I joined the Senate in October, I wasn't expecting quite this much action, you know, but... <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Be careful what you wish for, exactly. I suppose. It's, 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 it's been a... It was a very busy week. Well, it was. And, you know, and look, I give you credit for, you know, not only following all of this very closely, doing your job as a senator, but also willing to, to come on and explain all of this to us. So I, I don't know where you want to start. Maybe we can start with C-69. Because sure, let's start with C-69. What's going on there? It's slightly simpler to understand. Mm-hmm. So C-69, for, for those of you playing at home, is it's the new environmental impact assessment regulations, not regulations, legislation, the framework by which we would evaluate all kinds of projects, pipelines, but also mines, airports, railroads, uh, harbors, anything that is that involves intra, interprovincial or federal jurisdiction and could have environmental and social and health consequences. So I know it's been branded the No More Pipelines Bill. It's much more than that. It covers all kinds of major public and, uh, and, and corporate infrastructure, industrial infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important that we get this legislation right. It's important that we get legislation that works for, for construction and business and industry that also protects the environment and also recognizes First Nation rights. So the first bill that we got from the House of Commons, I think there was a very wide consensus on both sides of the Senate that the bill was dysfunctional. It was poorly drafted. It was a mess. So we we had all of our hearings. We went on the first ever cross-country tour to have hearings on a bill. Um, we spent many long afternoons and evenings and mornings working on amendments. And in the end, we came up with this kind of buffet approach uh, because we couldn't get consensus 
on all the amendments. We decided we would send all 187 of them over to the House of Commons. And so yesterday, in a very, you know, pleasantly... uh, It's not often that the Senate agrees on something in that kind of way, but we we sent C-69 over to the House. Um, We didn't have a standing vote. We didn't have a roll call vote. We just said, do we... Do we accept this bill? And everybody said yes. And, you know, from the conservatives, we heard the words on division, which means that they don't want it to go down as a unanimous vote. But this was not something, despite all the people who are very angry in my Twitter feed, this was not a liberal plot. This was the consensus view of the Senate that we have a package of amendments that we agreed to send over. And that is what happened yesterday. So C-69, now it goes back to the House and we'll see which amendments the government accepts, and then we'll, the ball will be back in our court. So if, if the government just accepted it all as is, accepted every single amendment, it wouldn't need to come back to the Senate, would it? Well, frankly, they can't accept every single amendment because some of them are at cross-purposes. Um, you know, because what we did was we sent them the independent Senate, the package of amendments proposed by the independent senators on the committee and the package of amendments proposed by the conservatives and then some a few other ones are like oh we like that you know we like that one from that conservative senator we like that one from that in, uh, uh, independent senator so we sent them a a mixed grill if you like um and they'll have to pick uh, I hope they pick wisely. There are some very good amendments. I mean, I think there's some extremely good amendments from the Independent Senate Caucus. I also think there's some pretty strong amendments that were proposed by conservative senators. And I think that if they they pick some from column A and some from column B, you know, they have to make sure that it's a coherent, you know, that's, it's, that it's, it's a coherent underpinning. Otherwise, nothing will work. But we've given them we've given them a lot of material to work with. It's a bit, you know, Rob, like when I was a, a journalist and I wrote really long and then would hand a really long piece to the editors. I didn't do this very often, but sometimes, you know, like <laughs> it, it's it's like it's a thousand words too long. Now now you now you fix it. Um, we've this is slightly what we've done to the House of Commons. Right. So today, the Environment Minister is saying that they were will carefully consider these amendments. So they're not closing the door on some changes. No. I, I would think that there's an opportunity here um, for at least for the government to, to save face and take a W and say we got this bill passed and we were open minded enough to accept some recommendations. So, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic that, that maybe some good could come of this. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, and, and, and it's important to note too that the Environment Minister is not the only minister. This is a this is a, a troika. Um, Amarjeet Sohi, the Natural Resources Minister, Mark Garneau, the Transportation Minister, and Catherine McKenna, the Environment Minister. They each have a, a piece of this legislation that falls in their in their hands. So it's going to have to be a, all three of them working together on this in all three of their departments. And let's, you know, I, let, let me lift the veil a little bit. The departments were not blindsided by these amendments. There's been lots and lots and lots and lots of conversation over the last two months about what kind of amendments we might propose, what kind of amendments they might expect, uh, and what kind of amendments they might agree to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this isn't, it's it's much less, um, it's actually been a much less partisan process than, than I thought it was going to be a month ago. There's been a fair bit of consensus building. And I think, you know, I think that maybe we'll get a package that doesn't outrage environmentalists, that doesn't upset business, but is legitimately a better package so that we can build stuff that we need to build and build it properly. Indeed. All right. Well, let's talk about C-48. You voted against C-48 at that, that, uh, now I guess we could say infamous uh, committee meeting. (laughs) It it was strange to see last night, Paula Simons, people accusing you of voting for C-48. It just speaks to how easily I think people get confused about what's going on. Well, because what we did yesterday was we voted on whether or not to accept the report, the report which recommended that C-48 not proceed. So this was sort of one of those double negative situations. So I voted yes. I voted yes yesterday because what I voted yes to was accepting the report that said to say no. Right. So in this so, case, yes meant no. In this case, yes meant no. no. I mean, I, I'm sorry, this sounds like a really bad rom-com, you know, <laughs> a politically incorrect rom-com from the 1960s. Uh, you know, my yes did not, in this case, my yes meant no in a way that has nothing to do. <laughs> exactly. With, right. I mean, you know, the issue is that we were voting on whether to accept the recommendation to kill the bill. 
So when I voted yes, and everybody got very angry with me, um, I was voting no to C48. I hope you guys can follow this. So um, I was ranting to my next-door neighbor about this, and he said to me, well, you have to admit it is kind of confusing. You can't blame people for being confused. So that is my best explanation. Now, um, what happened was uh, some other independent senators voted also to kill the bill, but not many of them. And so now the bill which was never really dead. It was just kind of tripped. Uh, you know, it was sort of winded. Uh, now the bill comes back to the Senate floor. Why, you ask, did so many senators vote against the bill, uh, vote against the report? And there, there are a couple of reasons. There are people in the Senate who are really quite concerned about C-48. Either they oppose it or they have a lot of very serious questions about it, but they frankly didn't like the precedence and the optics of one committee, six people on one committee, killing a bill. Um, and even I think some conservatives are a little bit nervous about what that looks like, because if you tell independent senators that they have the power to kill government legislation, one day the conservatives may be in government, and they wouldn't like it if the independent senators just started killing legislation because they didn't like it. Uh, so we're in uncharted territory here. So even some of my ISG colleagues who frankly do not like C-48 were very uncomfortable with the perception that a six six people on one committee could spike a piece of government legislation. And I think, that's, I think that's fair. There were other people who just didn't like the way that the report, which is quite unusual, it's not a report I would have written in that way, but uh, you know, people who, who didn't agree with the way the report was presented, which I know sounds ridiculously insider baseball, but mm-hmm. there you have it. So now the bill comes back to the Senate floor, and I'm working hard uh, with other colleagues to come up with amendments that might make the bill a little more palatable, but amendments that might have some chance of being accepted by the government. So this is this is harder than with C69, uh, but but I I have not yet given up hope. So we're basically moving on to third reading of that bill, right? Yeah, we're, yeah. So when we when we get back next week, probably middle of next week, it's hard to hard for me to judge because I don't know all what's going to be on the order paper, um, but we will, uh, it's my hope that we'll start presenting amendments and trying to get enough people to support those amendments that they can be attached to the bill, and then when the bill goes over, maybe the government will accept those amendments, or maybe those amendments will be a poison pill, and the government will look at the clock and the calendar and think, hmm, do we really have time to get this through? Is this our hill to die on? And... You know, so that, that is another possible outcome. So, you know, I guess there, there are three outcomes here. One is that we amend the bill to make it uh, less draconian. One is that the bill dies on the order paper because we run out of time. And one is that the bill is passed largely as is, um, in which case I will vote against it. So in terms of, of the, the timeline then, Paul, as you say, it's, it's becoming a real issue for the government to get these bills passed with an election expected in October. What, what, what is the, uh, the sitting schedule now over the next few months? Here? Well, the House, we, you know, I shouldn't say we usually, because I've been in the Senate for seven months, so I don't usually do anything. Uh, my understanding is that the House is scheduled to sit until the 21st, and we're scheduled to sit until the 28th. So, you know, uh, I've covered other legislative, you know, parliamentary things long enough to know that usually by the end of June, people are getting antsy and they want to get out of there. And especially for the liberals and conservatives who have an election coming up, um, and the the Democrats, although there are no new Democrats in the Senate, but, um, uh, you know, people, the parties will want to get on on the hustings. They do not want to be sitting in Ottawa dealing with this. So I think the the challenge is that the government still has a very heavy legislative agenda. There are still bills that have not yet finished in the House and have not yet come to the Senate for consideration. So uh, I, I'm not a liberal, I'm not a member of the government, and I've never been in Ottawa mm-hmm. at, at, at the end of a session like this or indeed at any time. It seems to me an odd way to run a railroad. Um, <laughs> if, if, I, if I were a government House leader, I would have had my legislation <laughs> lined up earlier, but then I like to get to the airport earlier than most other people. So 
that's just me. All right. Well, <laughs> and thanks for being you, Paula. We appreciate it. And uh, thanks for making some time for us here today. Always a delight, Rob Breckenridge. Take care. Uh, that is Alberta Independent Senator Paula Simon. So the latest on these two pieces of legislation, C-48, for now, lives to see another day. C-69 has gone back to the House with a whole suite of amendments. I think, and, and there seems to be a consensus, more or less, and, and I would tend to agree with it. C-69 is legislation that can be approved, right? I mean, the, the basic idea that we could have a new system of assessment, a more meaningful system of assessment, one that, that tries to keep everybody happy, it's conceivable. Whether this does it is another story, but it's, it's conceivable that we can get to that. The problem with the tanker ban in C-48 is there's, there's no redeeming value for it. There's no need for it. So it's not a bill that, that can be amended because ultimately you're still stuck with the same flawed premise that one part of Canada's coastline needs a, a, a tanker ban, which is essentially then an export ban, what is essentially then a, a, an oil export ban. Well, there are all kinds of, of tankers and ships that will not be banned, and for example, LNG exports will not be banned. So there is no need for C-48, so any amendments are basically a moot point because you're still stuck with the same fundamentally flawed premise. And as we mentioned last time, we talked to Paula Simons about this because she asked Transport Minister Mark Garneau this question. He couldn't answer it. Why do we need C-48 if we have C-69? If your argument is C-69 ensures that there's an environmental review of any new project, then C-48 isn't needed, is it? Because if, if you're going to allege that we have this pristine part of coastline where it would be too environmentally sensitive to ever allow any kind of pipeline project or tanker project or port or whatever, then C-69 would, would cover that. C-69 process would say, no, you can't build that there. That's a pristine part of coastline. So that, that's the concerning side of things. That C-48 could have been defeated by the Senate yesterday. It was not. It may now be amended. I think it's a lot less likely that the Senate is going to kill C-48. Maybe the hope at this point is that it dies on the order paper. And uh, certainly the clock is becoming an issue here. I don't know how many timeouts each, time ha- each team has here, but uh, the, the clock may indeed run out. On, on one or both of these pieces of legislation. Well, as you've been hearing today, there is a new proposal that's going to go to City Council on Monday to try to deal with this huge mess that now exists around business property taxes. Obviously, dealing with it after the tax notices have gone out and businesses are seeing these shocking numbers, that is not the ideal way to do this. So the whole thing, I think, is certainly an indictment of of city council and ultimately, I think, an indictment uh, of the leadership of the mayor. How did we allow it to get to this point? Councilor Ward Sutherland says this uh, new plan that's going to go before Council Monday is a significant change from the one put forward last week. So instead of asking for $60 million from the province, which seems like an unrealistic ask at this point, apparently this proposal will instead try to find $60 million in budget cuts. Not just one-time savings, but permanent budget cuts. As well as $71 million from reserve and a commitment to find another $60 million in cuts by budget time in November. So here's a little bit from Ward Sutherland on this. And it'll be quite immediate. And in fact, on a rebate system, when we looked into our IT, so within a month uh, in August, the rebate checks will come back to the business owners. Done. So we're going to be able to solve this issue immediately, but it is going to be painful because these cuts are going to be deep. It will guarantee a minus 10% tax decrease from last year to every single business uh, across Calgary, and it will actually be automatic. All right, so that was Councillor Sutherland in both clips. The second was him on the morning news this morning, which is why it sounded a little different. Uh, And here's what uh, Councillor Sutherland want to play these two for you, because he takes direct aim at Mayor Nenshi and his leadership, or lack thereof here. And I'm going to be extremely honest, there has been a lack of leadership from our mayor. 
And, uh, you know, he should be getting people unionized to get this together to make sure that this happened. And there, his plan of the grants was a terrible idea. He pushed it through. None of the councillors really didn't want it because it wasn't efficient and it delayed the process. Unfortunately, he's not. And, and to be honest is, there's been a lack of leadership. This this isn't a one-time thing. This is over several councils that this problem has happened. Uh, I feel that there is a lack of leadership. Uh, the, the last time with this grant program, everybody knew it wasn't going to work, but he pushed it through. And then he walked away and said, well, I'm not interested in it. So we'll see what happens on Monday. Hopefully, something meaningful can be put in place here. And not just a, another Band-Aid solution where we're kicking the can down the road and leaving small businesses not knowing what the future holds. Because obviously, there is a whole lot of angst at the moment. A lot of small businesses are wondering whether they're going to be able to survive, let alone thrive, as a result of these pretty shocking tax increases. And there's a lot of frustration, too. And I think you're going to see a lot of that manifested uh, Monday morning. There was a rally set for City Hall. If you're a small business owner, it would be, I I think, helpful if you're able to be there, lend your voice to this. 7.30 a.m. So it's an early event, uh, but this is because that council meeting is supposed to start uh, shortly afterwards. So hopefully City Council will see and hear this message loud and clear and some common sense might prevail on Monday. More details on this event, by the way, at yycsmallbiz.com, but it's Monday morning, 7.30 a.m. in front of City Hall. Joining us to talk more about this rally, one of the organizers of the rally, and a small business person herself who is dealing with the the same kind of issues that so many other business owners are dealing with right across the country, uh, Jill Bellant, uh, one of the co-founders of the Barbell Studios in Calgary, Uh, barbell.ca, B-A-R-R-E. B-E-L-L-E, Barbell Studios here in Calgary. I believe they have uh, three locations in the city. Uh, Jill Bell, and thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Yes, thanks so much, Rob. We actually have five locations in Calgary. Is it five now? grown pretty quickly. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Well, and, you know, on the one hand, that's that's a, a great success story, and there's, there's so many of those success stories here in Calgary, but now all of a sudden small businesses running into this, this brick wall of these property tax bills. I, I mean, to give us a bit of a, an idea of what, what your business is going through. Well, to be honest, it's frustrating, to say the least. And we, in fact, don't know what we're up against quite yet in the big picture. We have um, one landlord who has insinuated that we'll have at least 100% tax raise in the next year in one of our locations. So that doesn't even account for the other four. And these expenses, obviously, like other small business owners who've been speaking out about it, we just haven't accounted for them. And we you know, could be in danger of potentially shutting doors in some neighborhoods. Uh, yeah, and I mean, that's got to be incredibly frustrating. It's one thing, you know, if uh, someone starts a business, the business doesn't work out, maybe the idea didn't catch on, whatever. Those those things happen in business. But here we have a situation where it's completely and totally outside the, the hands of these small businesses. And it just, it, it's so completely detached from what otherwise is, is going on in the city. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, if we screw up our own business and that's on us, if the city is putting us in a position where we don't even have an opportunity to succeed, then that's where it becomes, you know, frankly, infuriating. And I I mean, we're all shaking our heads and trying to make sense of, you know, what the thought process is, how it makes sense. Why are we being punished? uh, Why are we carrying the brunt of you know, mistakes that have happened over the course of over a decade, really, in terms of spending and what the city has, has been doing, the choices that the city has made, and why do we have to be the ones um, carrying the cost of that? And to be honest, you know, most small businesses just won't be able to. So it's really counterproductive to the success of the city. You know, and, and what stands out to me about this situation are, are hearing from all of these small business owners who, who otherwise aren't really political or politically inclined or don't want to be political, but feeling like they have no choice. And I'd imagine you're kind of in that position. I mean, you're, you're obviously no, no stranger to, to the public, but to be in this position where you feel like you're, you're taking up a political cause, that's not what small business owners really want to be concerning themselves with, I wouldn't think. No, I mean, we're in the day-to-day business of operating, you know, and getting through and running our own, our 
own businesses uh, on a day-to-day basis, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, pretty much. But to be honest, it's it's very uncomfortable, and we're really between a rock and a hard place. Had we not been put in this position, we wouldn't be taking this action. It's truly desperate times, called for desperate measures, and that's why the rally, we've decided to organize it, because we have to do something extreme to get attention. You know, if we weren't making this kind of noise, would City Council act any differently? Right. And, and it's hard to know, right? It's it's hard to get a read of what they think needs to be done or what kind of steps need to be taken. I mean, we've got to this point where now the tax notices have gone out and now after the fact, City Council, I think, is prepared to do something. It's it's not clear. I mean, it's just, it's really hard to get a sense of where they're at right now. It really is. And it's hard to get a sense um, of both sides of the story and where the logic comes in. I mean, we know that spending needs to be cut and where that comes from is up to council to decide. To this point, we've completely lost faith in the decisions that they've made um, because that's what got us here in the first place. So, uh, you know, we know that there are split camps here. There are some councillors who who are supporting our cause and who are standing behind small business and believe that spending needs to be cut and have plans put in place um, as to how that is done. But, you know, we need... A majority. We need eight votes, not two or three. Um, you know, we hope that we'll be heard. We hope that we make a difference on Monday. And I do feel like there is a critical mass. Um, you know, we've spoken to many small business owners who have come to us and said, you know, please fight this fight for us because we have a strong voice in the community. Um, and, you know, we'll see on Monday how many people turn out. And hopefully that does make a difference. But outside of that, council needs to make some huge changes. And we hope to affect that change, but we're not in that room casting the votes. Right. I mean, the timing's deliberate, isn't it? Because it, it, we think that this is going to be uh, discussed uh, on Monday. Maybe we'll get some kind of a decision next week. So uh, that's why you selected Monday then, I'm guessing. That's correct. Yeah, the meeting will take place on Monday um, at 8 a.m. And so the rally scheduled for 730. All right. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think there is there, there is a message in in big numbers and hopefully we get a lot of small businesses turning out to this. I would imagine so. I think a lot are eager to make their voices heard. Uh, more details on the rallies, uh, yycsmallbiz.com. And also to give you guys a plug, it's Barbell. Am I saying that right, by the way? Barbell, right? You got it. You got B-A-R-R-E. B-E-L-L-E dot C-A. Uh, Jill, hopefully things work out and uh, it'll be interesting to see the numbers uh, on Monday morning that turn out to this rally. But uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thank you. Uh, there you go. Jill Bellin, of course, you remember her as a delightful presence on your TV screens and is uh, trying to make a go of it in the world of small business. And otherwise, you know, things are going pretty well for them. As she says, this business, Barbell Studios, is expanding in Calgary. So, you know, as we talked about, and and for so many businesses, that's the frustrating thing, right? It's one thing if, uh, yeah, I thought this would work, and it turns out it didn't, and, you know, know, so much for my idea. But here you got businesses that have obviously tapped into something. There's a demand for it. People like what you're offering. So the business model is a success. The city is the problem. That's so frustrating. So you got businesses that would otherwise be doing well that are now having to, to decide whether they can even still make a go of it. That should never happen. So something's got to give. And, and something's got to change as quickly as possible. In fact, it should have been fixed already. So even if Monday they come up with something, it, it, it doesn't let council off the hook for letting it get to this point. Well, while we're on the topic of rallies, there's one happening later today, as a matter of fact. Uh, Four o'clock this afternoon, 2500 4th Street Southwest. The Calgary Cannabis Club is holding an event to to protest what they see as the many flaws in legalization, which, of course, was rolled out last October. Now, I think to, to many observers, it kind of feels like the cannabis movement has won but that's not necessarily how they see it. But joining us uh, to talk more about all of this is Patrick Parsons, media director with the Calgary Cannabis Club. Patrick, thanks for joining us here today. Hey, thanks for having me, Rob. And by the way, to, to update a story, we spoke to you a few months ago about the situation where you had tried to make a $6,000 donation to the Tom Baker Cancer Center. They refused because they, they lacked a policy, I guess, uh, regarding such donations. Whatever happened with that? Well, hopefully because of that, uh, the Alberta Health, including the Tom Baker Health Center, 
uh, Cancer Center, uh, excuse me, will take a look at their policy regarding cannabis philanthropy. Uh, we know that there's a lot of money out there and there's a lot of people making huge money off of cannabis and that's part of the reason we're protesting today. But hopefully, because of the refusal of our donation, they will relook at their policy and um, be able to accept money from the cannabis industry down the road. Yeah. All right. So wh- why are you rallying today? Okay. And sorry to conclude on that story, Rob, mm-hmm. uh, about the donation. Yes. We have since been in contact with the um, Calgary Humane Society, whom which we've donated with before. And we've decided to turn the money that was refused from Tom Baker uh, over to the Calgary Humane Society. So we have a date coming up later this month. Uh, we'll keep you informed okay. on that. We're going to dedicate a bench to our uh, our friend that passed uh, this last winter. He succumbed to cancer. And we're going to dedicate a bench at the Humane Society and dedicate the money to them. Very interesting. Okay, so that, that's good. Still for a good cause. All right, well, let's talk about this this rally today. What is What is the message? Well, the message is, Rob, now, I, I went into a legal store the other day, and this was my first time. And, of course, they opened in October, and I was warned about the quality and the pricing and the packaging and and all this other stuff. And I finally went in the other day. One opened in my neighborhood, and I was just blown away by the pricing and the, the quality. was just, it was amazingly low quality with incredible pricing, almost $20 a gram on a product that costs maybe a dollar to $2 a gram to produce. Right. Isn't that a byproduct, though, of the supply shortages that, that they've been dealing with? Uh, the supply shortages, well, see, that's another part of the equation, Rob, because they don't have a lot of product. But the people that do have the product and are selling it are the big corporate stores. They seem to be the ones getting most of the licenses. They seem to be the ones opening and having product. And it's just, it winds up to be, they're more concerned about pleasing their shareholders than they are about just your regular average Joe that wants to buy some quality cannabis at a decent price. Right, but I mean, ultimately, if even if that's true, if they they want to please the, the shareholders, you, you got to do well to please the shareholders. And and if you're you're lacking supply or your prices are not competitive, you're not going to do well. So ultimately, if that's their goal, doesn't it doesn't it do a disservice to that goal? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, for myself, a medical patient, the selection uh, when legalization was pushed through, and I they didn't take much of the consultation they had with the current industry into consideration when they rolled out legalization. So it was, um, from what I can tell, just a huge flop. I mean, you know, within days they had nothing, no product in any of the stores, and everybody was right back to the black market. But for medicinal patients, don't they have different uh, streams by which they would acquire cannabis? It all comes from the same place, Rob. And the same, the same stuff I order from medically is the same stuff that's in the stores. And since October, the quality's dropped, the selection is, has dropped. Like, there's a lot of times I can't get exactly what I need. So wait, what's the answer then? Oh, I think the answer is to license more of the smaller producers, craft producers, mom and pop, uh, operations. They're making it even harder now for for just even smaller startups to get going. They have to have a complete structure built and everything before they can even submit their paperwork now. Yeah. And plus, they, I mean, the packaging requirements uh, seem onerous, too. Oh, like the amount of packaging for one gram of flour is ridiculous. It's about a Rubik's Cube-sized plastic box uh, for, you know, a couple marble-sized chunks of uh, cannabis but i mean isn't isn't there isn't there an obvious solution here though patrick in that uh people are are free to grow their own Uh, buy some seeds grow some plants and just bypass the whole system exactly and that's part of what we encourage people to do that's our main goal is to educate people towards what the laws actually are what they're permitted to do legally everybody and alberta actually has the best provincial Laws. I mean, certain laws were left to the provinces. Certain are, uh, laws are federal, and some provinces 
you know, made exceptions. Uh, Alberta really does have the best, the best, I guess, form of legalization in the country. All right. Well, speaking of, of things you can do legally, I'm, I'm curious about this, because part of this protest today, I don't, I don't know if this is legal or not. You're actually going to be, what, handing out joints? Is that true? Yes, we're going to be gifting out uh, free joints. Um, our club was donated some craft cannabis that was produced for very low cost, pesticide-free. It's 100% craft cannabis, high-quality cannabis that uh, was produced for between a dollar and $2 a gram. And it's 100% legal to gift cannabis. To adults, uh, up, obviously. Up to 30 grams. So we're going to be gifting joints to anybody that's over 18 that yeah. has their ID uh, that we can legally gift cannabis to. We're going to gift uh, cannabis. We were up late last night rolling a bunch of joints. <laughs> really? Wow. All right. So that's so uh, what, four, okay. four o'clock today. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And where is it again? It is at 2500 4th. Street Southwest. What's there? Is there a reason why it's it's there? There's a New Leaf store there. Uh, now the New Leaf store uh, controls 20% of the market in Alberta and I believe 30% in Calgary. Wow. And right. it's uh, you know, it's one of the big corporate stores and these guys on a you know, without pointing the finger at them even though we're going to be there, they're one of the stores that was approved early and I know people personally, mom and pop operations that have been waiting for their license, waiting for the AGLC final stamp of approval for since October. And they're paying leases, they're paying rent, they're paying for uh, everything, utilities, all this money they're sinking into these shops that can't even open while these other ones continue to sell cannabis at outrageous prices. All right, more at uh, calgarycannabisclub.org. Patrick, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having us again, Rob. All right, that's uh, Patrick Parsons, media director of the Calgary Cannabis Club. Uh, they're in a generous mood today, apparently. <laughs> I suppose this next conversation, there's a bit of a parallel to the cannabis legalization debate in that legalization didn't mean the end uh, of the debate and that there are still some potential issues to be ironed out. Uh, this month will mark three years since medical assistance in dying was legalized in Canada. That's obviously been a big adjustment for the healthcare system in ensuring then that patients' rights are respected but also in balancing, too, the, the concerns or the beliefs, the faith of those who work within the healthcare system. And even though medical assistance in dying is legal, there are still some, some barriers that exist. So this will all be uh, up for discussion tomorrow. There's an event taking place here in Calgary uh, put on by the group Dying with Dignity Canada. Uh, goes at 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. It's set to go from 2 to 4.30. Uh, the lecture room at the Kirby Center on 7th Ave here in Calgary. So joining us to talk more about uh, all of these issues, in fact, someone who was in town for this event will be the keynote speaker uh, at the event, uh, Shanaz Gokul is CEO of Dying With Dignity Canada, more at dyingwithdignity.ca. Shanaz, thank you so much for uh, coming in here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I, I do want to touch on this story that's been getting a lot of attention this week, and I think it's important when we're having a conversation about a, a serious issue like this, an important issue like this, that we get our facts right, and I think that's certainly on us in the media. There's these stories going around about this 17-year-old girl in, in the Netherlands and the suggestion that uh, she was dealing with, with some mental health issues and was euthanized. And, and you know, this is the slippery slope that opponents uh, often talk about. But this story really got got twisted, right? I mean, it was really misre misrepresented, wasn't it? I think it's a prime example of really irresponsible journalism and of not having the, the facts straight. Uh, this uh, young girl, and our hearts go out to her and her yeah. family, uh, were, she was denied access to an assisted death and instead uh, chose to stop eating and drinking and to die naturally that way. And, you know, it's really important for us to get the facts straight when we're talking about uh, incredibly sensitive issues uh, like assisted dying, not controversial. In, in Canada, we know 85% of Canadians mm -hmm. support this, but the facts really matter. And it's, it's troubling when these sorts of stories emerge and the facts aren't aren't uh, fully taken into account. Well, absolutely. I mean, we do need to take the facts into account. I mean, it's it's reasonable that we would want to 
gauge what the impact of, of this is um, and and if there are potential issues that arise that, that perhaps we need to go back and uh, and address those but the 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 assertion that was made if it, if it's a false assertion we shouldn't allow it to to impact our debate at all and I think that's what happened here well absolutely and I, and I think we've in you know in Canada we've moved well beyond the debate of if we have assisted dying it is uh, this month is the third year anniversary yeah. of legislation and it's questions around the how and the safeguards and on those particular areas facts matter and mm-hmm. they're incredibly important to frame the discourse and the, the the discussions that we need to continue to have right because there's there's a world of difference between what we speak of as medical assistance in dying and what would otherwise be called euthanasia and i think opponents of of, of the uh, former tried to argue that it's a slippery slope to the latter, that once we go down this path, we're going to get into situations where people are making the decision on behalf of others, and you, you'll get outcomes like this purported case in the Netherlands. But what does the evidence tell us, though, about this idea of, of any kind of a slippery slope? Well, the first piece of evidence is that the slippery slope is a logical fallacy, mm-hmm. right? It's an argument that's often used uh, in debates as a way of structuring arguments. If this, then for, therefore that. And life doesn't always work that way. So that's the first issue. It's, it's a fallacy of, of logical reasoning. But the other thing that really matters in Canada is that there are safeguards in place. Um, there is oversight on medical assistance in dying. Um, and we haven't seen any evidence and really very little evidence internationally that there are problems with jurisdictions that have assisted dying. Uh, it works. It doesn't work for people who are excluded from the legislation, but for, we think, the nearly 8,000 Canadians who've been able to have an assisted death since 2015, it's working fine. Let's talk about the mission of your organization and, and why this issue is, is of such importance. Why is this something then that, that you felt compelled to, to, to push for, uh, to defend? What, what is it about this issue? Well, I think it really boils down to, you know, a person's right to decide what they want to be able to do with their own body. Uh, so it's about choice and having meaningful choice at end of life. Assisted dying is one of those options. Um, it's about autonomy and being able to say, this is my body and I'm going to do with it um, what I think is right for me in my personal um, and unique medical circumstances. And it's also about suffering, intolerable suffering, right. uh, so that people who do have intolerable and enduring suffering do have meaningful options uh, where they are they are able to find a re- relief from that suffering that works in their circumstances. And, and that's what Canada did. We we um, we got this landmark Supreme Court ruling. The legislation then followed. So some might wonder, well, well why does dying with dignity still exist? Right? I mean. It, the, the change occurred. It's now the reality. So why do you still exist? It's a very good question and one that many in our organization in 2015 after the Carter decision, which led uh, the Supreme Court decision, which led to assisted dying legislation, thought that there wasn't going to be a need mm-hmm. for our organization. Uh, but we use a human rights lens when we look at assisted dying. And when you work within a human rights framework, you realize pretty quickly that uh, there isn't a human right that's over, that's done. Oh, we don't need to worry about that right. anymore. And there are many outstanding issues when it comes to assisted dying from groups of people who are excluded from the legislation, but also access issues where people are having trouble uh, still finding clinicians or finding themselves in facilities that have um, implemented forced transfers for medical assistance in dying where they're not able to die, where they happen to be getting good health care. So there are a number of outstanding issues, and I think it's going to be some years um, before many of them will be resolved, and most will likely be resolved in court. Well, and we have had that issue here in Alberta, as, as you probably know, where obviously we have some faith-based organizations that are involved in, in operating certain hospitals and what kind of a situation that leaves patients in if if these organizations are trying to argue that despite the patient's wishes, we can't allow that to happen here. So as, as you talk about then patients having to be moved, et cetera, is that, is that one of those challenges still? Absolutely. And it's a problem that's sort of beyond uh, faith-influenced facilities. I would say that these healthcare facilities have been established to provide healthcare and to serve communities that they're in. So the basis is about healthcare, but they are influenced by, by faith in some cases. And then there are just hospices that, for whatever reason, don't want to provide an assisted death. Uh, and these are really, really problematic policies when it is clear across the country in Alberta, there was a series of stories last fall uh, that Jenny Russell from the CBC exposed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a problem in every province and territory. And we were talking, um, when we were talking about assisted dying, of people who were often very vulnerable, very frail, 
fragile. We're moving them can cause physical trauma. And why would we want to move them unnecessarily? There's emotional trauma for that person and their family when they feel abandoned by people who are giving them great quality care. Uh, And there's also trauma on the part of the people who work um, in these facilities where they're, you know, prohibiting uh, the allowance of made medical assistance and dying Mm -hmm. on site. Uh, And they're being forced not to be able to support the person that they've been caring for uh, for a number of days, weeks, or even months or longer if they're in long-term care. And I think the most important thing for us as an organization is... You know, if our system is, as we say it is, a universal system of access for healthcare, it's a single payer system, uh, that we have to put the person at the center and be very person centered in the type of healthcare. And once you sort of, you know, make that sort of deduction and that, that important uh, decision, then you realize all this other stuff has to fall to the wayside. People, the most vulnerable people in our society, need to have access to healthcare basic and essential health care wherever they happen to be right we, we also do have the principle though that that doctors beliefs will be respected that that no physician is going to be forced to do something that goes against those beliefs of course we just have that that court ruling in ontario around those regulations saying that maybe you, you don't have to actually perform this yourself but there is an obligation to to help the patient and provide a referral do you think that strikes a, a fair balance you know, it does because rights aren't absolute. Uh, and so when, you know, that court decision in Ontario was uh, against or was in favor of the College of Physicians of Surgeons of Ontario's policy uh, for uh, effective referrals for MAID. Um, and it is a fair balance because clinicians shouldn't have to participate in um, assessing or providing if they're not comfortable with medical assistance and dying. Um, but the person, you know, still needs access to the help that they need. And so it's a, it's a fair reconciliation of rights. And it's not ideal for everyone because, you know, that person, that patient now has to see another clinician that they may not know or have a relationship with and have very difficult conversations around their end of life, including possibly a request for medical assistance in dying. So it is a very fair reconciliation. And I would also state that, you know, when we look at uh, clinicians who have a moral and religious objection to medical assistance in dying, we're looking at individuals, Mm -hmm. hospitals and hospices and long-term care uh, include hundreds, thousands of individuals who all have the right of conscience. It's both a negative and a positive right. And their rights, for some people that are in those facilities, including the patients that are there, their rights aren't being respected. Right. But I mean, it it did represent a big change. And, you know, I think for a lot of these these clinicians, maybe they they had worked in the system for many years uh, as it was before. Now this becomes the reality. I mean, it, it seems like there was going to be that adjustment period and in, in, in trying to balance all of this. So do, you, do you think, though, that we're, we're kind of through that or are we still, we still struggling to find that balance? I think, uh, you know, assisted dying in Canada is still relatively new. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we will get to that place where that balance and people can get the help that they need if their clinicians, you know, don't want to participate will, will happen more seamlessly. Um, and I will also say that I think that that um, balance will come from the demand from people who will be patients or asking for family members, you know, inquiring about all end-of-life options. And so we have seen the beginning of a, a really seismic cultural shift yeah. uh, around not just assisted dying, but discussions around death and dying sort of writ large. And I think that is the long-lasting legacy of the Supreme Court's decision in Carter. Uh, and it's one that as we, as an organization, that we support people, we have a, a personal support program. And so people come to us for all sor- sorts of questions. Uh, questions and emotional counseling that we see that that shift and you know is happening and the people that are in the driver's seat that are really sort of making that happen um uh, it's the public you know human rights belongs to the public sphere and they're the ones asking the questions of their you know healthcare teams and they're going to drive it in the future because it is as we say it's medical assistance in in dying so it implies a role in the medical system are are the medical associations are they now i mean are they on board with this and and has it meant for them and and even for new doctors coming out of medical school uh, a, a different approach in in what they're learning 
I, well, I think that there will be a shift uh, around a curriculum for medical and nursing and, and pharmaceutical um, schools, that that is going to come uh, in a much more intentional fashion uh, in the next few years. And I would say for you know medical associations and their, their uh, regulatory colleges, yes, mm-hmm. that they are on board. Um, they are uh, ensuring that they're putting out guidelines that you know that they believe fit within the the legislation bill c14 the federal legislation for assisted dying uh and but they were slow to come on board right the medical community did did not drive the discussions um, around assisted dying once again it was the public driving that forward and so they have come on board and we still have a ways to go yeah well and and one example of that and one of the people who are going to be speaking of this forum tomorrow uh is uh, a calgary resident and uh, his late wife was denied the right to medical assistance in dying because of the the competency requirement now i mean it would seem logical that the people making this decision are, are competent in doing so but but explain where where this barrier still exists. Right. So in order to have an assisted death and the moments immediately before receiving uh, medical assistance and dying, you have to be able to provide um, express consent. So very explicit that you want to have an assisted death. What we find troubling uh, with the current legislation is that for people uh, who've already been assessed, they've had at least two comprehensive assessments for medical assistance and dying. They've been approved. They're now eligible for medical assistance and dying. But let's say their, their, their date to have an assisted death is next Friday. Um, and on Thursday, they lose capacity. They you know, have a, a stroke or they slip into a coma. Um, or maybe it's, you know, it's uh, based on the medications that they're, that they're yeah. currently taking. We think that it's, it's quite unfair uh, for people in this particular situation and in the category of assessed and proved uh, to be denied. They've already met all of the requirements. They've you know, crossed the T's and dotted the I's. And what's happening is that people will you know, lose capacity and lose the right. But even you know, as troubling are people who will choose to die too early. You know, I'm worried about losing capacity. So instead of waiting, as Audrey Parker said, for one more Christmas, this Mm -hmm. was a woman in Halifax who had terminal breast cancer that had spread into her brain. She chose instead to die on November 1st. And there's something that's very tragic and ironic about legislation that now is causing some people to feel that they're being forced to die too early. And this needs to be redressed specifically for people who are already eligible, that that late stage consent requirement needs to be struck so that they're not in a position where they're giving up valuable days, weeks, or even months of good quality life. That has to change. Well, that will be certainly one of the perspectives presented tomorrow. Uh, A lot of different uh, voices. Also, you'd you'd alluded to some of the poll numbers you're going to be presenting tomorrow as well on how Canadians uh, feel about all of this. So much more dyingwithdignity.ca, but the event takes place tomorrow, 2 o'clock, 2 to 4.30, in the lecture room at the Kirby Centre downtown. Shanaz, thank you so much for coming in here today. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much. There you go. That is uh, Shanaz Gokul, CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.